through 11. 5, 8 through 11, this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, your text reminds us that we are involved in a spiritual battle. As we think about the spiritual battle, we are grateful of the promise that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We want to ask that by the power of your spirit and your word, you will show us the way to resist the evil one and help us to see how we can have victory in the Christian life. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. In case you weren't with us last week, I mentioned that it's significant that Peter uh, refers to the devil as a roaring lion. He didn't say that he was like a raccoon who can get into your garbage and, and make a mess. He didn't say that he was like a mouse who can get in the church and, and make a little mess with its droppings all over. By the way, this last week, Dee Dee was cleaning, and she went down into the kitchen. She came up hysterical. She said, there's a mouse down there. I don't know if it's alive or not. Being the brave man that I am, I said, Kristen, will you take care of it for me? I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't. But imagine if instead of a mouse, she went down into the kitchen, and there was a lion. She would have been beyond terrified. By referring to the devil as a lion, Peter is letting us know that we have a ferocious adversary. But he tells us to resist him, and we can resist him. And James 4.7 reminds us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So he's powerful, but he can be resisted. I mentioned this last week as well, and I, I think it bears repeating if you ever find yourself involved in a situation and it doesn't seem to make sense and it seems maybe oppressive, like maybe something supernatural is, is involved, don't overlook the fact that there may be a demonic influence involved. We learn about possible demonic influences in the book of Job. This is what we read in Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. I'm going to read a few uh, verses so you can follow along if you like. Uh, Job 1, 13 says, Now there was a day, and I want to pause here for a moment. It was just an ordinary day. Job woke up. He went about business as usual. He didn't expect that this day was going to be unlike anything that he experienced before. Now there was a day. When Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, 
And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. I am 99.99% sure that when Job received these four messages, he must have said to himself, what in the world is going on? This doesn't make any sense. And of course, we know that the answer to that question, what is going on in the world, is that something beyond this world was taking place. And if you read the previous chapter, you know that this was all an attack from Satan himself. How did Job respond to all of this? Verse 20, this is remarkable. Then Job arose and tore his robe and and shaved his head, a sign of mourning. And he fell on the ground and he worshipped. He worshipped God. Satan had told the Lord, does Job fear you for nothing? Does Job love you for nothing? You've placed a hedge of protection around everything that he has, but you you just strike what he has and his possessions, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord let him do that, but Job did not curse God. Job proved Satan wrong. Instead, he worshiped God, even though he did so with tears flowing down his face as he stood beside ten fresh graves that now held his children. He showed that, no, God means more to me than my possessions, than my children. And if we would read on, we would see even more than his own life. Satan was not right. Now, I need to point out something that's very significant here. We need to remember, as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. This is what we read in verse 11 and 12, backing up just a little bit. This is Satan speaking. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went away from the presence of the Lord. Satan can only attack us with God's permission the devil is on a leash and god himself determines in his sovereignty how far that leash will go out but we do need to remember in the midst of this battle the devil is god's devil but our calling 
is to resist him, to stand firm and to resist him. So what do we need to do? Last week, we mentioned that there are at least three things that we need to do. First of all, corporately, we need to gather with other believers, and this is just by way of review. We need to gather with other believers. And I had mentioned that I thought it was significant that chapter 5 began with telling the shepherds how they're to oversee the congregation and how the flock is to submit to their leaders and then be humble before one another in, in the church. And Peter is bringing the church together, obviously, because when they are unified, then they are strong. And by being strong together, they will be prepared for the opposition that will come. Next, we mentioned that another thing we need to do is uh, watchfully be persistent in prayer. Watchfully be persistent in prayer. And we talked about Mark 9, where a man had a, a demon-possessed son, and he, he brought his son to the disciples and asked the son to drive out the demons, and, and they couldn't do it. They had done it before, but they couldn't do it on this occasion. And then the man brought his son to Jesus. Jesus drove out the demon. And then later, in private, the disciples came to Jesus, and they, and they said, why, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said in, in Mark nine twenty nine, this kind, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And it was a reminder that there's, there's a kind of demonic realm, and there's ranks in the demonic army. There's a kind that you're going to be up against. And the only thing that will give you victory or a breakthrough in the situation is prayer, which also indicates just how powerful prayer is. When we get down on our knees and cry out to God, then we can rise up in victory. So we need to be strong corporately and, and prayerfully. And num number three, uh, we need to firmly stand in the faith. And I mentioned, I think the clarification is important. It's, it's not in your faith, it's in the faith. In other words, if you want to be strong in faith, don't focus inwardly on yourself. Don't ask yourself this morning, well, how strong is my faith? Is it strong? Is it, is it weak? How is it doing? If you want to be strong in the faith, look at your God. Look at how mighty, glorious, powerful, loving, gracious he is. I love what John Owen said in his classic book, The Glory of Christ. He said, some talk much of imitating Christ and following his example, but no man will ever become like him by trying to imitate his behavior in life if they know nothing of the transforming power of beholding his glory. If we regularly beheld the glory of Christ, our Christian walk with God would become more sweet and pleasant. Our spiritual light and strength would grow daily stronger, and our lives would more gloriously represent the glory of Christ. Some complain of their sad spiritual states, but if they would only behold the glory of Christ by faith as he is revealed to us in the scriptures, they would soon be healed. So if you want to be strong in the faith, behold your God as he's revealed in the pages of Scripture. So those are three things that we, that we need to do. Uh, this week, we want to talk about three things that we need to know. There's some things that we need to know. Uh, notice the connection between verses 8 and 9. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing. I'll just stop there. Knowing. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing. There's some things that you have to know if you're going to resist the evil one. Resisting the devil isn't about brawn. It's about brain. Don't let your emotions run away with you. You need to be clear-headed. Think of how Peter began this section. Be sober-minded. So there's some things that, that we need to know. I think this you all know, and I hope you know this. The devil's a liar. In fact, Jesus called him the father of all lies. And we see that right, right at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He's talking to Eve, and he's saying, Did God really say that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not die? And she says, Yet God said, We'll, we'll die. And, and what does Satan say? You will not die. He just flat out lied. God said this. No, God didn't say that. The devil is a liar. And if we're going to combat lies, we need to know the truth and stand firm on the truth. So there are some things that we need to know if we're going to resist him. And I have three for you this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, you need to know you are not unique in your suffering. Number two, you will only suffer for a little while. And number three, you need to know that you will be restored by God himself. So number one, uh, you need to know you are not unique in your suffering. You are not unique in your suffering. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. I believe Peter's trying to ward off the, the Elijah complex here. Elijah said on, on one occasion, Lord, I'm the only one. Everybody else has deserted you. I'm the only, in our context, I'm the only Christian left. What did God say? 1 Kings 19, 18, I have reserved for myself 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you are not the only one. And this is important because it, it is really easy when we're going through suffering or time of adversity, uh, for us to fall into self-pity. I'm the only one. No one can understand what I'm going through. I'm unique. Everybody else has it made. It, it's so easy for us to think that. We need, we need to be careful. In one of John Piper's books, uh, I remember him saying that pride uh, basically has two voices. On the one hand, uh, pride is boastful. On the other hand, pride can, can manifest itself in, in self-pity. I think boasting is, is obvious. You know, I'm so great. Uh, I've achieved this success in my business or academically or athletically or musically uh, because I'm a hard worker and I've done this, that, and the other. And I deserve all the awards and acclamations that I, that I achieve. That's obvious, right? We know that's nothing but, but hubris and it's nauseating. But what we often don't recognize is, is that self-pity also comes from pride. And sometimes it looks humble, but it's not. A person is in self-pity and, oh, you don't, you don't know what I'm going through. 
I lost my job when I when I should have got a promotion and and I didn't get the award and I, I should have gotten the award and feel sorry for me because I deserve to have the, the award. I deserve to be promoted. I deserve, I deserve. See, it's, that's just pride. I deserve better than I'm getting. Now, we, we want to be careful here, and we need to exercise great discernment because when people are struggling and going through a, a difficult time, Romans 12, 15 says that we are to weep with those who weep. So we need to be careful here. Nevertheless, I do want to point out that there is great danger in self-pity. When I was a, a student at Moody, uh, there was a number of scandals actually among uh, well-known pastors who fell in the ministry, and, and there was one who, who fell because of adultery, and um, he was widely respected in evangelical circles, and, and I'm not going to give you his name because I don't want you to get caught up um, with who it was, but I remember John Piper talking about this man, and this man said that he fell because of the pressures and the strains of ministry, and he said that no one could understand what he was going through in the ministry because of the the pressures and the, the burdens that were laid upon him, and I'll never forget what John Piper said. He said, beware of the danger of self-pity. Self-pity is destructive. And Peter's reminding us, you're not the only one. Your brothers throughout the world are suffering the same thing. You are not the only one. Sorry, you're not unique. Maybe if you get into every little detail of your situation, you can't find another person. But generally speaking, you are not unique. So I think Peter has at least a twofold exhortation here. You're not unique. Many other Christians are suffering, and it it didn't lead to self-pity. They wanted to honor God with what they were going through. And on the other hand, he says, others have, have suffered as you have, and even worse. And they have honored God. Like Job, instead of feeling sorry for themselves, they continue to worship God. You can continue to worship God even if you do so with, with tears flowing down your face because of the pain that, you, that you're in. So if we're going to resist the devil, we need to know, number one, uh, you are not unique in your suffering. Number two, we need to know you will only suffer for a little while. You will only suffer for a little while. Verse, verse 10 again. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you. Now that translation, a little while, uh, is important. The New King James Version just has a while. uh, But the word little is in the text. Uh, It's the same word we find in Matthew 9.37 where Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's our word, or, or little. And I'm emphasizing that because Peter is, is making it known after you have suffered. It's just, it's a little while. It just, it's a little while. Once again, we've seen Peter do this before. He is putting our suffering in the context of eternity. What is a week of suffering? 
or a decade of suffering or a lifetime of suffering compared to eternity. What is it? I mean, it's, it's nothing. If we could only have an eternal mindset, if I could give you a picture, I'd, I'd put like a, a dot right here. That, that, that's our life. Just picture a dot. And then I would say, and this is eternity. See it? Eternity. I would just keep on going. It's, it's little. Even our entire life, it's little compared to eternity. And if we could just have that perspective. Thomas Boston said, had we a clear view of the other world, we should not make so much of either the smiles or the frowns of this. If we could have a clearer picture of the other world, it would temper everything that we experience in, in this life and appropriate so. Thomas Boston went on and said, Oh, if I knew there were a kind design in it, talking about suffering or affliction or, or a difficult lot in life, oh, if I knew there were a kind design in it, I would willingly bear it. Here's what I want to tell you. There is a kind design in it. God is sovereign. And this is right where Peter began his, his letter. You can back up to First Peter if you like. 1 Peter 1.3, how did he begin the body of his letter? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why would it be necessary to be grieved by various trials? Because God is refining our faith, our character. God is taking the hammer and the chisel and he's banging away at those things in our life that don't reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And he uses the fire of affliction to, to refine us and remove the dross. And every single one of us, myself included, if we're honest about ourselves, we know we, we need this. If we're going to be humble, if we're going to keep our focus on God, if we are going to reflect the character of Christ, we need this. It is necessary. There is a kind design in everything that you've experienced which has wounded you. It's come from your sovereign, loving, heavenly Father. Job went through everything that he did. Why? What was God doing? Refining his character. There, there is a design in it. But it, it, just for a little while. I remember a while back, one of my kids, I'm not, I'm not going to mention any names. I don't want to embarrass any of my kids. It's not Zach. You don't have to worry about it. But... Uh, one, one of my kids texted me, Dad, can you pray with me? And I said, I don't have time for prayer. I'm busy. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> Never. Are you kid, one of your kids wants prayer? Of course. <laughs> Drop everything you're doing. Uh, but uh, this child of mine was, was going through something, and this child was afraid that was never going to go away. Um, and I, I said, it will, but let's, 
Let's pray. But isn't, isn't that kind of fear? This is never going to go away. I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. Maybe some of you felt like that with COVID. You didn't, you didn't know if it was going to wait, go away if you were going to recover. And, and sometimes we don't know if we're, if we're going to recover. But regardless of whether you recover or not, you're just going to suffer for a little while when you compare it to eternity. That's what Peter's saying. When you compare it to eternity, it's, it's just a little while. As uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we need to have that eternal perspective. And when we're going through difficulties, let's just, let's just take it one day at a time. I like what Jesus said, and this is in the context of anxiety in Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is where we get that saying, take it one day at a time. Jesus, don't worry about tomorrow. Just take it one day at a time. doesn't mean you don't plan for the future, but don't start being anxious about what's going on tomorrow or next week or, or next year. I saw a meme on Facebook one time. It said, I have worried about so many things in the course of my life, and some of them actually happened. <laughs> Think of some of the things that you worried about that you thought were going to happen. It stressed you out. You lost sleep, and that never even happened. Sometimes we worry about things that, that don't, even, don't even take place. But regardless, take it one day at a time, and, and as you take it, one day at a time, as you're looking to today, remember that you're living today in light of eternity. That's important. So resist the devil knowing you are not unique in your suffering. Number two, you will only suffer for a little while. And number three, you will be restored by God himself. You will be restored by God himself. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. I like that. Uh, the New King James Version says, uh, but may the God of all grace. And I don't like that translation because it gives the impression that, that Peter possibly has a, has a prayer for us here. This, this isn't a prayer. This is a promise. This is a statement of fact. This is a declaration of what God will do. After you have suffered a little while, God will restore you. It's not a prayer. It's a promise, and you need to know this promise. And one other clarification that I think is important. Uh, the New King James Version omits the word himself. It's in the Greek. That's, that's important. It should be included. Because this is a promise of what God 
himself will do. When you have suffered for a little while, God is saying, or Peter's telling us, God himself, God will do it. He is going to take personal responsibility for you to be restored, strengthened, established. God himself will do it. And we need to know that as we're going through difficulties. And who is this God? This is just another little phrase. The God of all grace. Not just a little grace. Not just some grace. The God of all grace. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you just have to slow down a little bit. And you, you just have to look at every word, every, every phrase, sometimes every, every tense. The God of all grace. Isn't that wonderful? And what has the God of all grace done? He has called you. If you're a Christian, he has called you to his eternal glory. And if God has called you to his eternal glory, you will reach your destination. God is driving the train. It will not derail. You will drive, you will arrive safe and sound at your destination. God has called you and he has called you to eternal glory. You will arrive. Isn't that comforting? God is in control. God is, God is sovereign. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to a couple people, and we were, we were talking about Ecclesiastes 3. And uh, I admitted that I had read that passage so many times, and yet I missed the context. And I had read that passage a lot at, at funerals, and I, and I missed the context. In case you don't know how it goes, here's part of it. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And of course, we, we read that at funerals because it's a reminder that our our lives are in God's hands. And I miss that. The main point about these different times was that these times are established by a sovereign God. God's in, there is a time to be born. I don't know about you, but before I was born, God did not consult me and ask me when I would like to be born. Were you consulted? And Psalm 139 tells us that God already, each one of us in this room, has decreed the number of our days. That's already written. That's already a part of his plan. God, God is sovereign. He's in control. And here's what we have to understand. If it's a time for you to go through suffering or, or affliction of some sort, for God's good kind purposes in your life. That's, that's the time that, they're, that you're in, and you have to understand that God has a, a good plan for that. And understand that when the time is right, God's perfect time, and I love how Ecclesiastes 3, a little later, says he will make everything, everything, underscore, everything beautiful in its time. But while you're waiting for him to make everything beautiful in its time, know that God will bring you through. And when the time is right, God himself 
What does Peter say? God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that. He will restore you. The word could also be translated mend. It's, it's used of the disciples mending their nets. Isn't that a great picture? Putting their nets back together. When the time is right, God will put you back together. Do you feel like you're falling apart? Do you feel like your body is breaking? When the time is right, God will restore you. He will mend you. And actually, he will do more than we could ask or imagine. He will give you a glorified body. When the time is right, God will restore you. He'll strengthen you. He will confirm you. He will establish you. When when the time is right, God will do it. We we were talking about Job earlier. He he had seven sons and and three daughters, and they all died in one day. if, If you would read through the book of Job and get to the end, you would see that at the end of the book, he has seven more sons and and three more daughters. Isn't that a wonderful coincidence? What might God be communicating through that? God is saying, you lost your family. I will restore your family. The other kids in glory, I'm presuming, but even in this life, he was showing God is a God who, who restores, who mends, who brings back. And if you look at his possessions, if you read the number of the animals, the camels, donkeys, etc., that he has in the front of the book, and then you read the back of the book, you'll see that the number is exactly double. And once again, we should ask, what might God be trying to communicate through that? Not only will he restore us, but again, he will do immeasurably more than we could all ask or imagine. That's the kind of God we, we have. He will, he will restore you when the, when the time is right. So as you're going through a, a difficult time, keep your, keep your focus on God. You're great, glorious God. And, and my prayer is that you, you could say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Why would I not want to trust him? I owe him my, my very life, and he's the one that has provided for my salvation and in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Of course I can Trust him. He's given his son, and, and Christ came and gave his life for me so that I could be forgiven and have everlasting life. Can I trust that? Of course I can trust that God. He has given everything for me. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He can be trusted. Job knew that he could be trusted, even though it was difficult. Heart-wrenching. He can be trusted. Keep your Keep your eyes on God. He's kind. He knows what he's doing. And then Peter closes with a a benediction. To him, to God. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I, I almost cried when we were singing this morning. His kingdom is forever. I was like, that's That's glorious. God's dominion, God's authority over heaven and on earth is forever. Regardless of what's going on right now, regardless of what you're suffering, regardless of what the devil is doing, in the end, God's kingdom is eternal. His dominion is forever and ever. And a day is coming when sin will be no more. 
Tears will be no more. Death will be no more. And the only thing that we will be enjoying is wholeness, restoration, and glory with God forever and ever. And is it any wonder that as Peter talks about God promising himself to restore you, that he basically just worships. This, this is praise. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All, all he can do is worship God regardless of the pain that's, that's going on now. Let's close the prayer.